The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. We continue this morning in our series of First Peter. Don't waste your trials. And by now we've seen more than a few times that Peter's writing to encourage suffering believers to persevere in hope and continue to do good. And that's a timely message for us because two of the great temptations in suffering are unbelief and doing wrong. Let me explain. When suffering moves in and and clouds of doubt follow along with the suffering, uh, the clarity of God's promises is harder to see. Uh, The events of God's providence don't make sense to us. And it's as if, I mean, thoughts like this come to our mind. Look, God, if this is how you're working for me, I'll take care of it myself. That's unbelief. And it leads right into sin in our suffering. I'll take care of it myself. (laughs) Suffering comes in, temptations to sin follow and the instructions of God's word are harder to remember and the wrongs might be much to bear Lord I'll do this I got this revenge, slander, attack belittle, break relationships a full range of, of sins from passive withdrawal of love to active attack in hatred That's doing wrong. So this call to continue to persevere in hope and continue to do good, it's just so fitting for whatever kind of sufferings you're experiencing. I I love the last line of last week's text, 1 Peter 4, 19, because it just sums it all up with a therefore. Here it is. Therefore. Let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. There it is. So now we leave chapter 4 and we move into chapter 5. Why don't you read it with me? Beginning at chapter 5 verse 1. So, Peter writes, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, help us now to benefit from your word to us this morning. And particularly, I pray that you'd give grace and encouragement to our elders as they most directly are addressed here in this text. And give our church, congregation, a renewed understanding of your intentions for the elders and the relationship between the elders and the people. And also, Lord, I pray that you'd shine light 
from this text by way of implication to the many and varied other contexts in which we serve as leaders in the church as teachers, Sunday school teachers, youth leaders, or volunteers, in the home as pastors, or excuse me, as pastors, as parents and grandparents, in the world as managers and administrators and supervisors, school teachers and care providers. I pray that this text, by way of implication, would shape all those roles. We ask that we might be to the praise of your glorious grace in whatever situation we find ourselves having responsibility over others. Meet us now in this text. Stand forth, I pray, Lord Jesus. In your name I pray, amen. Well, from this text, my primary aim is to exhort and encourage the elders of Bethlehem. It was not written, though, as a private communication to just the elders. You know, it didn't come in the back door, psst, elders, here's some counsel. For it came in through the front door, so the whole church is listening, so it's fitting that we do this right now. And so, if you're not a pastor or elder, let me give you four reasons to lean into this passage. Four reasons. Number one, that you might benefit from the elders' leadership here at Bethlehem. Number two, that... We might have a shared understanding of the biblical expectations for pastors and leaders here at Bethlehem. And, and we, would, we would value that role and see it in similar ways together from this text. Uh, number three, that in, as I prayed, in the various leadership contexts that you're in, that this text would shape how you lead others. And then number four... This is, this is, I have to say this carefully, that you might look through your elders as through a glass darkly and see in your under-shepherds the echo and shape and reality of the chief shepherd of your souls. That from the elders' labor and, and as our labors align with Christ and his, his love for you and his, his headship of this church and his shepherding care and his role as overseer, that as we resonate with that in our labors for you, you'd see him. You'd see him and be drawn to him in worship and trust and love and in hope. So... There are four reasons. Now, here's my outline. It's, it's very simple. I, I, I say, first, let's look at what I'm calling a preamble, verse 1. And then in verses 2 through 4, um, we're going to look at Peter's instructions to the elders with three questions. Uh, how, excuse me. What, how, and why? So there's the outline. Point one, preamble. Uh, points three, four, and five. Oh, I better look at it. What, how, and why? Concerning Peter's instructions to the elders. First, the preamble, verse one. Now, it's noteworthy that Peter doesn't just continue with the flow of the letter from verse one, just plow right into chapter five. But it's, it's like there's a, a, a new introduction of himself here. He, 
he, he puts this thoughtful preamble to his instructions to the elders. Verse 1. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Now, what's he doing here? three, Three things to see here. First, in the preamble, Peter reminds the elders, not that he's an apostle, as he already did in chapter one, but that he's a fellow elder. There's, there's no sense that Peter is pulling in with this word to the elders, you know, pulling rank. He's going to flash his apostolic credentials and, uh, and, and talk to them. Uh, he, he doesn't remind them that, that, look, you know, I walked with Jesus for three years. Uh, I, I saw the miracles. I saw the transfiguration. He doesn't remind them of Christ's restoration when Jesus forgave him and, and, and charged him. Peter, do you love me? Feed my sheep. He doesn't do anything to elevate himself over them. Rather, he comes in, figuratively speaking, beside them with all humility and speaks as a fellow elder. Elders, as a fellow elder, I've got something for you. It's elder to elder, brother to brother counsel. And and I'm smiling because I can resonate with this. I've overseen now 28 or 29 church plants here from this church. And when I get near those guys, I have no apostolic badge. I have no authority. They have elders in those churches. Remember flying to one of the churches to help with a conflict and trouble in a church with another pastor from Bethlehem. He asked me, he said, so Kenny, what authority do we have in going here? I said, absolutely none. <laughs> right? What we've got is, is kinship in Christ and a shared value of the authority of the Bible. Let's go do it. <laughs> anyway, sidebar. Uh, number two, in the preamble. Notice that Peter gives the elders not a command, but an exhortation. Not a command, but an exhortation. We can see the difference between a command and an exhortation in Paul's letter to Philemon. There, the Apostle Paul writes to encourage Philemon to receive back his runaway slave, Onesimus, as a brother in Christ, not with retribution, but to receive him back in Christian love. And listen carefully to how Paul uses both the word command and the word appeal. It's the same word for exhort in our text. Command and appeal or exhort. Here it is from Philemon 8. Paul writes, Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, Yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal or exhort to you. What's he getting at? Paul could have commanded Philemon. Philemon, receive Onesimus as a brother in Christ. Do it now. It's right. It's biblical. By coercion, getting Philemon to do what's right. But why doesn't Paul talk that way? He explains in verse 9. 
that he chose not to command, but to appeal for love's sake. And then verse 14, he says, I preferred to do nothing without your consent, forcing you, in order that your goodness might not be by my compulsion, but of your own accord. So, pull it back into 1 Peter. No, let me stay in finally. So, Paul could have demanded, but what's he after? He is after Philemon's response of love. He's after Philemon's response of love. Real biblical change comes from the inside out, not from outside in. And some people fault Paul for these words here. They say, well, look, Paul's supporting slavery here. And it's exactly the opposite. And I think history, history proves it because Paul's approach here has spread throughout the whole globe to undermine slavery. Not by the power of law or command, but by the power of love. So Peter likewise knows what he's doing. He's coming into the elders to inspire them, mobilize them, encourage them, exhort them, appeal to them to love their flock, not just do what he said. Third, in the preamble, Peter reminds the elders that he's both a witness to the sufferings of Christ and a partaker of the future glory. A witness to the sufferings of Christ. We, we know that Peter is with Jesus. Uh, he saw the persecutions of Christ, the rejection, the betrayal, the arrest. It's unclear whether he saw the, the crucifixion or not. But we know he saw the wounds on the risen Christ after the resurrection. So he witnessed Christ's sufferings in that way. But also I think he has in mind, like the elders... He's witnessed the sufferings of Christ in suffering for Christ. And that way he's coming alongside them again. A witness, look, I've seen the sufferings of Christ, so have you. As people have opposed and persecuted us for the sake of the name. And yet, like these elders, he lives now in hope as a partaker in the future glory yet to be revealed at the coming of Christ. He's putting himself alongside them again, I believe. So now, what's the appeal? What's the appeal? And this is where I break it down into these three questions. Uh, what, why, excuse me, what, how, and why? Get those straight. What, how, and why? So what's the appeal? The, the appeal is super simple, straightforward. Verse 2 Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. There it is. What's, what's Peter have to say to the elders? What's his appeal? Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. That He's urging them to do their job. They have a particular responsibility to a particular people, 
a flock that is among them, uh, the, the people over whom the Holy Spirit has made them overseers, shepherd and oversee them, elders. There it is. Now, these three terms in the New Testament, elder, shepherd or pastor, and overseer, sometimes translated bishop, they conspire to give us the, the normative New Testament picture of local church leadership. And uh, simply put, well, this will help you. If you're new to Bethlehem, this little understanding will help you understand why we do leadership the way we do. Why do we have elders? I'm, actually, I remember when that was controversial, like Baptist church didn't have elders. That was for Presbyterians. Uh, why do we do this? Well, simply put, let me just walk through these terms. Elder, shepherd, overseer. Simply put, Paul, the Apostle Paul, the great missionary all throughout the book of Acts, and we have his letters. Throughout the book of Acts, it's clear he appointed elders in every one of his church plants, in every one of his new churches, in every church. He appointed elders in every church. So that's simple. So local churches have elders, but now... (laughs) But what can make that confusing is in reading the New Testament, you bump into other terms, like pastor, also translated shepherd, as in Ephesians 4.11. Christ gave gifts to the church. He gave pastor, teachers. Also, you bump into the word overseer, sometimes translated bishop, like I said in Philippians 1.1, to the overseers and deacons. You go, okay, wait a minute. So now... In a local church, we know there are deacons. That word doesn't shift around. But what about these, the the primary leadership of the church called elders and pastors and overseers? Does that really mean that there's three different groups of those kind of leaders? No, it doesn't. It doesn't. Uh, Let me explain. We don't take those additional terms, pastor and overseer, as additional leadership roles in their church because as this text makes clear, it's the work of the elders to shepherd or pastor and oversee. So in the New Testament, to explain this, some texts take the verb shepherding, turn it into a noun and call those who do it pastors, call them shepherds. Likewise, other texts take the verb overseeing, turn it into a noun, and call those who oversee, overseers. (laughs) So, bottom line, uh, each of those terms helps contribute to the picture of the local leadership of the church, the elders, pastors, shepherds, overseers. The word elder contributes with the the uh, echo of uh, the role of elders in ancient Israel, people that were wise and exemplary, uh, heads of families who helped lead the community. The term shepherds or pastors uses the agricultural metaphor of a shepherd, uh, leading, feeding, and caring, and tending for his sheep. And we know in the Old Testament, (laughs) beautifully, God himself calls himself a shepherd. Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. And the shepherd metaphor is picked up by Christ in John 10. 
I'm the good shepherd. So there is a richness in these terms that is helpful. Uh, The term overseer, or sometimes translated bishop, highlights the responsibility of the elders to keep watch over all the flock. Know their welfare and see that they flourish. So, Our text helpfully puts those three concepts together. There's another text I can recommend to you. Uh, Acts 20, 28 puts those three concepts together so that we, with good conviction, good biblical grounding, say that this local church has elders who shepherd and oversee the church. Now, often we call the vocational elders pastors. That's just culture. It's not a different role. Just one role uh, leading this church. A responsibility given to us, we believe, by God. And by you. So there's the what. What's the charge? Shepherd the flock that is among you, elders. Exercising oversight. Second question now. How? How? The manner in which the elders do this is very important. And uh, I love it that Peter has these three not statements followed by three but statements. Not, da-da-da-da, but, ba-da-da-da. So here's the first one. Not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. So we elders aren't to serve because we have to, uh, but because we want to. Now, several things can take the want to out of pastoring, out of shepherding. Pastoring suffering people is hard. And if the suffering is caused by opposition or persecution, it makes it harder still. If the suffering is from opposition within the church, that can be harder still. Overseeing a church can be exhausting and time-consuming. Currently, when I talk to the pastors of the Treasuring Christ Together Church Planting Network, across the board, they say pastoring in this polarized America is very difficult. And COVID doesn't help either. On the other hand, so there's pressure <laughs> to, to, to not want to do the pastoring work, but here's pressure to continue. On the other hand, the pressure to continue pastoring, even when the desire is gone, can be strong. Elders can feel expectations of their people to continue keep doing the work. Expectations of our own family members, or even feel... Expectations of God, you got to keep doing it. Don't want to let God down. Fear of failure might cause a pastor to continue to do it even when he doesn't want to. Pride. Peter says, elders, shepherd the flock, not under compulsion, but willingly. But not only that, second one, 
Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. It's in verse 2. Shameful gain. I think Peter has in mind, not for the money. Not for financial gain. I, I met a pastor once at a pastor's lunch. I met a bunch of pastors at a restaurant eating lunch together. And we all went around and we shared how God called us into ministry. And uh, there was a, an older man who, it was his turn. And he said, uh, well, he actually stunned the group with this. He said, I was roofing a house on top of the roof, really hot day, miserable. I was roofing a house and I hit my thumb and bam. And I said, darn it, there's got to be a better way to make a living. He threw his hammer down. He said, I'm going to be a pastor. And let me tell you how he pastored matched his calling. It was terrible. He harmed that church. Unbelievably, this quest for shameful gain can manifest itself in crazy schemes. You know the phrase, truth is stranger than fiction? Here's the truth. This is true. Stranger than fiction. I also met a pastor once who removed all his congregationally appointed elders and restocked the elder board with his mom, his sister, his children. And his wife. And then he proceeded to lead the church to sell off all of its multi million dollar assets in order to fund him as an evangelist to travel throughout the world for the next. I mean, there's more money than it would outlast him. I mean, it depends on how much you took each year. God intervened in that one. So, this can be really, really ugly. For this reason, one of the elder qualifications is not a lover of money. For this reason, one of the marks of the false teachers in the New Testament is they're after your money. God wills that pastors lead and oversee people with a wholehearted desire. If you're an elder of this church or any church and you don't joyfully want to lead, pray. Ask God, beg God, plead with God to give you the desire again. Perhaps take a sabbatical. Certainly don't keep it quiet. Let the other elders know. Let your spouse know. Let your wife know. I am struggling. Mobilize others to pray for you. And if an eager willingness to shepherd does not return, you have no choice but to resign. Step out. 
<laughs> Pastor John used to say, for God loves a cheerful pastor. Third, third not but statement. Not domineering, but being examples over those in your charge. So what's Peter getting at? You know, one of the harms that came, it seemed to focus or find traction in church planting circles was this idea, a, a misapplication of the threefold offices of Christ. Christ being prophet, priest, and king. And some pastors would take that, like I said, seem to orbit in church planting circles and say, well, um, what's your type? I'm a prophet because I love to preach and teach. Or they might say, I'm a priest because I have a heart to care for the people. Or they might say, I'm a king because I have a gift to rule. You see the problem with that? There's a big problem with that. They failed to see that Jesus is all of these things all at the same time. It is not ours to break off a chunk of Jesus and say, I'm going to be sanctified toward that part of him. But rather, the very thing the prophetically gifted needs is the priestly shepherd grace and so on. It caused a lot of harm and it actually fed kingly pastors with a, self, with a sense of self-justification that they got it from the scriptures when they didn't. Truth is, God is conforming all of us, all of us believers, all of the pastors and elders to his whole image in Christ and not just a fragment of it. So, as you know, in recent years now, there has been an increase in claims of abusive leadership in churches. And, uh, and I don't mean just um, sexual abuse claims coming from the Catholic Church. I don't mean that. I mean in evangelical churches as well. In some of the situations, the claim is justified, and in some situations, the claim is not. You know, it's, it's not necessarily evidence of domineering leadership if an individual in the church doesn't get their way. And it's not necessarily abusive leadership. Actually, it's good leadership when the elders hold you accountable to your biblical calling. And it's not necessarily abusive leadership when you don't agree with your elders. What's domineering leadership? The word is translated, uh, the word translated here, domineering, means to have mastery over or to lord it over. Does that ring any bells? <laughs> I think, I know that phrase. <laughs> Jesus talked to Peter about that. That's why Peter's bringing it up. Mark 10. Jesus warned Peter about this. 
Jesus said, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And the great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. Domineering leadership is when leaders use their authority to forcefully serve themselves and not others. Sometimes a dominating, a domineering leader will do so aggressively and actively control other people, overpowering them, bullying them, name-calling, putting out inappropriate demands or even dismissiveness. Domineering elders might demand people to comply with oppressive, unreasonable, extra-biblical expectations. A domineering leader might say, do it because I said so and I'm the elder. That's the pattern of elder leadership. I would say it smells like domineering leadership. I actually had lunch with some elders like that once. I told them, I'm not even, have, even, I'm not even enjoying having lunch with you guys. They were so dominant. Actually, they said to me, your doctrine of eldership is killing our church. We put in elders and we, the church has gone from 100 down to 25. And I said, it's because you're leading like domineering. It's not our doctrine. <sighs> Misuse of scripture. Demanding repentance and confession for behavior that is not biblically sinful. That's the pattern. And surely the unspeakably horrific sin of sexual abuse by clergy is a form of aggressive domineering of the flock. Now sometimes it comes in a passive form. I've seen churches planted by self-pity. Let me explain goes something like this. When the pastor says, he gathers a crowd around him, gathers, gathers a people, nice people. And, and his, his, his rhythm, his line is, look, everyone's against me except you people. Uh, and for fear of hurting the wounded pastor, the people follow, the people obey, the people comply until maybe it's months, maybe it's years, it all collapses. So there's a passive strategy. Other more passive strategy would be manipulating the facts, using gossip, slander, and words to control other people that might look not like, how about this? How about for the sake of unity, fellow elders, I want you to swear allegiance to me. That's scary. My allegiance is to Christ. So... Just some thoughts on what abusive leadership might look like, what domineering leadership might look like. And it would be a, a, a rhythm, a flow, a pattern of that. Continuing with Jesus' words to Peter in Mark 10, where he said, You know that those who are 
considered rulers over the Gentiles, lorded over them, but not so with you. Mark 10, 43. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Elders are to shepherd not in a domineering way, but by proving to be Christ-like examples to the flock, laying our lives down for them, not the other way around. Third question, why? Why? Peter reminds the elders of their motivation for shepherding well. Verse 4, And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Simply put, Peter's camping out on the hope that's ours in Christ, that when Christ returns, he reminds the elders, you will receive a crown. What kind of a crown? An unfading crown of glory. The image is from... From the athletic sphere, when, when those who won the race, the victor, would receive a, a crown of glory, a crown of uh, flowers and, and beautiful green things growing at greenery. And uh, I believe Peter has most in mind not individual rewards for the elders, which might be probably as true from other texts, but, but the crown of eternal life that's ours in Christ. The crown of of Jesus himself being given us when Christ returns. I, I think that's the crown of glory he has in mind. The unfading crown of glory that'll be fully ours when when we experience the triumph of Christ when he returns and all our trials and troubles and temptations are gone and we will forever be with him and we will treasure and love and worship him forever and ever. I think that's the crown. He has in mind. So what motivates you elders? The treasure of Christ forever. Keep at it. Well. I need to close this message now by pivoting toward the Lord's Supper. And it's not hard. It is not hard at all to point you to remember Jesus. I want to do it this way. I want to read a, a I want to say a terrible passage from the Old Testament. <laughs> and right in the middle comes gospel light, news, good news. Before the coming of Christ, During the time of Ezekiel the prophet, there came a dark time when the rulers of Israel consistently betrayed their God-given responsibility to shepherd and oversee the nation. In unbelief, they forsook God and acted selfishly and negligently, causing great harm to their people. And through the prophet Ezekiel, God spoke a word of judgment on them and a word of hope for his people, which was fulfilled 
which has been fulfilled with the coming of Christ. I'm just going to read some experts. Just listen. This is Ezekiel 34. God says to these wicked shepherds, Thus says the Lord God, Ah, shepherds of Israel, you who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. Dropping down to verse 9. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, behold, I am against the shepherds. No longer shall the shepherds feed themselves. I will rescue my sheep from their mouths that they may not be food for them. Behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep and I will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among the sheep that have been scattered, so I will seek out my sheep and I will rescue them. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep, God says. And I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost and I will bring back the strayed. This is the gospel. This is the gospel. The good news of the new covenant. God himself came in the person of Christ, his son, to shepherd his people. Prepare to receive the elements of the Lord's table. The bread reminding us of the broken body of Jesus and the cup reminding us of his death for for us, the shedding of his blood. Prepare to receive, but just these glimpses of Christ as as our God, as our shepherd. Christ is the good shepherd, John 10, 11. He laid down his, his life for us, his sheep, to bring us to himself. He did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life in this way. And he did so willingly, not under compulsion. <laughs> and not for shameful gain, but for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame. For the glory of God and the redemption of his people. Christ is the overseer of your souls. His eye is on you. And should you stray, figuratively he tells us this. He will leave the 99 sheep in the pen in order to come after you. So if you're straying from him, he's after you. Yield to him. He is the overseer of your soul. Let him catch you and bring you back. And Christ himself is our crown, our great reward, our treasure. Our future is bright. Because when he comes, he will take us to be with himself forever where there is fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. 
as we live with God and with Christ and the people of God forever and ever in the new heavens and the new earth. (laughs) Behold your God, behold your Christ, the chief shepherd, the overseer of your souls, the elder of all elders. Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church or write us at 720 13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota, 55415. Bethlehem Baptist Church, spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, through Jesus Christ.